Eric Shesky's Weekly You Demon. This Catholic dude abides. So sit back with a sarsaparilla and enjoy. We have an interesting show today. We're going to talk about the origins of Christmas. We're going to talk about some ancient Christian practices that have come down to us through the through the centuries, literally the centuries. And I'm going to talk about some autobiographical Taoism due to an unfortunate situation I had to actually apply these Taoist principles to, to my own life, perhaps unsuccessfully, <laughs> but I had to do it. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that as well. So anyway, have a great Christmas, and as always, thanks for listening. Alright, so what's the podcast schedule over the holidays? Well, the answer is, I don't know. I obviously got this podcast up. Um, I've made quite a bit of drinking and uh, children coming home and having a good time. Next weekend, I, I fully expect to post a podcast. I don't know. It might be um, a little bit unusual. I might uh, cut and paste some talks I've done in other venues and put together podcasts. I might just do a short podcast or I might um, just do a full-blown regular version. I just don't know yet. Don't know how I'm going to be feeling. Don't know what the family commitments are or other social obligations. I do have a project that I mean to do. If you ever come to my studio, which is in my basement here, you'll, you'll see I'm surrounded by about 3,000 books. Probably around 2,000 books or 2,500. I'm surrounded by all these books and I'm, I have them all highlighted. Oh, <laughs> I haven't read them all, by the way, uh, not by any stretch. But I've, I've read a lot of them and I have a lot of notes and stuff in the margins. And I've been meaning to go through and, and start spending like three to four minutes kind of summarizing each each of these classic works. I might, I might just kick that off. I might do two or three of those books, put them together, and throw that out there for a short podcast next weekend. We'll see, but something will be posted. God will. Let's jump right into the Feast of Sol Invictus. Or as us Christians call it, Christmas. So was it really first the Feast of Sol Invictus? Did the Christians just appropriate that or misappropriate that for its own their own propaganda purposes? No, that's not what happened with Sol Invictus. Sol Invictus was the response of the pagan priest to counteract Christmas. So Christmas came first. But I think it's worth discussing because it, it can't be denied that, uh, one, Early Christian practices often adapted pagan practices in order to convert people and spread them, um, spread the word. Definitely an argument you made that that's where saint veneration came from. The family relatives, the, these pagans, lots of different people, you know, in the, in the pantheon of the pagan gods. And in order to appeal to people, the Christians point out, well, we, we do have saints and uh, we venerate them. We don't worship them. We don't pray to them in the sense that they can give us anything. But we do accept this communion of saints where um, we're all part of the body of Christ, dead or alive. And just like you can ask a, dead, a live person to pray for you, you can ask a dead person to pray for you. And if the dead person is closer to Christ in heaven, um, his prayers or his petitions on your behalf might help you even more. 
and that then kind of appealed to people who psychologically were disposed to believe in lots of different gods. So, again, not not a far-fetched argument um, to make, um, and I think there's probably something to it. So now let's look at a different way uh, pagan myths uh, may have impacted Christianity. This one's a little more serious. It's the argument that all these Christian myths, or truths, <laughs> depending on who we are, were basically just takeoffs of pagan myths. So the idea that we'd sacrifice one man for the sins of everyone, the idea that a great man would have to be born of a virgin woman, the the idea in this criticism seems to be that yeah, you just took all these old pagan myths and you just did the same myth yourself uh, to promote Christianity. And, and quite frankly, that never really made sense to me. It, it doesn't really make any sense from the Jewish tradition, which was never pagan. Granted, you know, you had pagan influences that you know the, the, the Jewish priests would have to fight against, you know, like the worship of Baal. You know, so you'd have um, the Jewish pro- uh, prophets, rather, you have to fight against those, but it, they really, Judaism is not pagan. I mean, that, that's why you had this tension off in the Old Testament, paganism and Judaism. Yeah, and then the idea that, I mean, you look at some of the early Christian writers, I mean, these are often brilliant men. They would have been aware of all these pagan myths, and they didn't make that connection, even though, you know, they may have had these Bacchanalites out there partying and ripping apart a guy. At the, at the end of the party and sacrifice, uh, they may have actually known people who did crap like that. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know how. I don't know how long that Bacchanalia cult. I'm not sure how late it existed, but there are definitely these church fathers are closer in time to it, and they didn't make that connection and certainly didn't think much of it. But then finally, I want to raise a point that it's kind of hard to get your head around, but here, here I'm just going to put it out there, and you can think about it. You know, the existence of these other pagan myths don't disprove the truth around Christ's birth and Christ any more than the existence of Elvis impersonators disprove the existence of Elvis. So I'll, I'll say that again. The existence of these pagan myths and their supposed imitators in the Christian religion don't disprove the truths about Christ's life any more than the existence of Elvis impersonators disprove the existence of Elvis. Now you gotta think about that. I mean, at one level, we might be thinking, oh, that's pretty profound. But then you think about it a little bit more, and you're like, wait a second. Shesky, you got that in reverse. You know, Elvis came first, then came the impersonators. Here, pagans came first, then came the Christian impersonators. So you got backwards. It's like, yes, I do have it backwards. But here's the thing. Even if it were true that there were pagan myths, say, about a great man must be born of a virgin, or that one man must be sacrificed for the sins of the many, it's probably because those intuitions are embedded in the human psyche. They they are true. These things must occur. And it took divine revelation. It took God himself coming down from heaven to take the form of a human baby to actually happen. But that doesn't mean people didn't have a premonition of it ahead of time, thinking this is kind of how it's got to be. And therefore they developed these pagan ersatz beliefs, these, these fake, these artificial ideas that were that pale in comparison to the truth of what actually did happen, but that someone may have a premonition that would kind of, this is how things would have to be, and therefore they're struggling in the darkness and coming up with these kind of ideas or these kind of myths or beliefs or fables, it's quite believable. If it is true that no, part of the divine plan is that Christ must be born of a virgin.
that Christ would have to be sacrificed for the sins of all men. If those are true, and we believe they are true, it would make sense that men would somehow premonition, have a premonition of this even prior to the incarnation actually occurring. So anyway, that's, that's just kind of mull that over. That's one of those thoughts that came with them, came with up on my own. Although I suspect if I went back throughout my reading over the past, you know, the past, you know, three decades, I'll probably find out that I read it someplace else. If I had to guess, I'd probably absorb that from Chesterton. And if I had to pick a book where I may have absorbed that from, it would have been The Everlasting Man. near and dear to my heart for, well, about 30 years now since I read uh, J.D. Salinger's Franny and Zoe. The topic is the fifth chapter of Thessalonians, Paul's injunction to pray without ceasing. You know, what exactly does that mean? You can't sit there in the synagogue or in church or even in a quiet corner in your house praying all day. I mean, you'll starve. Your kids will be orphaned, etc., etc., etc. People have, you know, tried to fill this or answer this question in various ways. The one answer, which, which, which I really like is kind of just like, wait, well, as Robin Daniels points out in The Virgin Eye, prayer is really more of a way of life. Pray, play, they're kind of related. You just have that prayerful attitude, no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing. And that way you kind of pray without ceasing. So it's not actual on your knees in prayer. Okay. It's just, you just have the attitude. No matter what you're doing, no matter where you are, you have that prayerful type attitude and disposition towards things. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. However, you could also respond saying, well, that's not what Paul was saying. He said, pray without ceasing, not be kind of prayer-like, dude. He is saying, pray without ceasing. And so the question is, can that be done? And there is a venerable line in traditional Christianity that says, yes, indeed, it can be done. To do it, they use a thing called the Jesus Prayer. And the Jesus Prayer is a short prayer. It says, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's it. Twelve words. I was first exposed to this in J.D. Salinger's book, Franny and Zoe. And by the way, those who aren't aware, J.D. Salinger wrote that 50s classic, Catcher in the Rye, which I really liked. I liked it so much, I went out and bought his other two books, Franny and Zoe, and I think the other one was called like Nine Short Stories or something like that. Kind of an interesting guy. He became a recluse in New Hampshire after he became famous and kind of kept to himself. He didn't write anymore. In fact, it's kind of funny, I know, that for years everyone was excited that, hey, when, when Salinger dies, there's going to be this huge outpouring of, of literature from, you know, post, post-mortem or posthumously literature from his pen. And I think he died 10 years ago, and I haven't seen anything. But in, in his follow-up book, Franny and Zoe, it's about a woman who's having a nervous breakdown. And she reads this book called The Way of the Pilgrim. It's a 19th century classical Russian, Russian literature. It's about a man who learned the Jesus Prayer as an answer to Paul's injunction to pray without ceasing. He said it repeatedly over and over and over again. He said it so much that constantly kind of ran through his mind he kind of reset the reels of his psyche to constantly roll through lord jesus christ son of god have mercy me a sinner lord jesus christ son of god have mercy me a sinner so no matter what he was doing throughout the day that kept churning in his background 
and I think we all know that seems plausible. Oh, and by the way, Franny Glass in the J.D. Salinger book, she is basically trying to do that because she's having this nervous breakdown and she's thinking maybe this can save her. And it's been years since I read the book, but that was the gist of it. Her and her brother, uh, Zoe, kind of start trying to work through all these permutations. They're not particularly religious people, especially Zoe, to say the least. But they're both absolutely brilliant, and they try to figure this out. Anyway, I think we all know if, if you sit back and look at yourself, the mental world you have is a constant reel of different thoughts. And as I've mentioned in other contexts, it's really crucial to try to eliminate those thoughts. And that can't be done. I don't care what people say. I don't care if you're into this centering prayer, which I think is bunk. I don't care if you're into Buddhist contemplation. I don't think you can shut off the mind. I think it's unnatural to try to do that. I think you can, as I heard one Hindu guy say, he goes, I think you can turn the volume down a little bit, but you need to replace it with something else. So you turn off the negative thoughts, you turn off the self-centered thoughts, and you replace it with positive thoughts, or better yet, holy thoughts. Here you can replace it with the Jesus prayer. So your mind is constantly running the Jesus prayer through its, through itself. <laughs> and the mere fact I stumbled there, by the way, ought to have you thinking about the intransitive nature of the mind to kind of acting on itself. That's what makes, that's what makes psychological illness so, so tricky. But anyway, there is a tradition in the Eastern Orthodox Church that says you can say the Jesus prayer over and over and over again and eventually you make it part of your breath. Okay. And that's crucial. You're breathing with the Jesus Prayer. And so, and there, there are manuals. I've read them. They'll say things like, on the in-breath, you'll say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God. And the out-breath, have mercy on me, a sinner. Something like that. And you have this breathing rhythm. And during your prayer times throughout the day, actual times dedicated to prayer, like in the quiet corner type stuff, you practice this. And you do it over and over again. And then when you have to go out in the real world, you kind of keep on trying to do it. And they're not talking... Like, you know, Catholics and the rosary, you know, they do a rosary, it's 50 Hail Marys. No, they're talking like, you do this Jesus prayer 10,000 times a day. And it's been a while, but I, th I think it is. I think it's like 10,000, 20,000, I don't know, but it's, it's, it's a jaw dropping. And I remember one person, I think it was in that pilgrim book, actually, that actually say, no, get out there and do it 10,000 times a day until it becomes second nature to you. And actually count them out. And they have prayer ropes, you can actually count them out. I'm probably not doing it justice. I remember back in my mid twenties, I was working as a lawyer in Detroit in a pretty high stress job. <laughs> and I'm trying to do this 10,000 Jesus prayers a day. It was like becoming a source of stress for me. And I, there's no doubt I'm the type of person, no matter what he does, he starts kind of obsessing on it and wants to do it really, really, really well. You probably can't tell that from listening to this podcast, but he started obsessing on it. And I got to get these 10,000 prayers in. And it becomes almost a source of stress. <laughs> At one point, I'm just like, you know, I forget when something goes wrong. I can't say the prayers. I'm like, mother effer. <laughs> I, can't, I can't say this prayer. You know, and so needless to say, at that point, something's gone totally, totally awry with your prayer practice if you're dropping the F-bomb because you can't get it in. So needless to say, I'm not going to be your spiritual guide on how to incorporate the Jesus prayer into your life. Uh, but I do think there's something to be said for it. And by the way, when I found myself hitting that level of frustration, I just stopped doing it. Or what I should say, I stopped counting. Okay. I've always continued to try to do the Jesus prayer. And by the way, it's, it's, again, it becomes second nature. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I mean, I probably said it literally over a hundred thousand times, maybe a million. I don't know. Over the course of the past 30 years, that 
is a perfectly acceptable act of contrition, after confession, by the way. And once in a while, if you whip that out in confession, you might get a priest who knows what it is, and he'll be impressed, man. Then he'll think you're a righteous dude. No, but, but it is only 12 words long. It keeps the confession pithy. It's a short contrition, and I think you can feel it, too, a little bit more than just reading that canned prayer that they often have there at the kneeler. Anyway, if you want to get into the Jesus prayer, I'd really recommend start with the pilgrim, uh, the way of the pilgrim, or I think it's called a narrative of a 20, 19th century pilgrim. I'll, I'll post it in the show notes. I'll post the exact name of it. Pretty sure you can get it online free of charge. I bought it in an anthology of Russian spiritual literature. It's like a three-volume set, which has a lot of really cool stuff in it, by the way. I'll try to post a link to that as well. There's also a really, really nifty book, and I think it's out of print, and I don't know why, but it's called The Jesus Prayer by Lev Gillette, G-I-L-L-E-T-T-E. He was a, he's a bizarre dude, uh, 20th century Roman Catholic monk. He kind of then becomes Eastern Orthodox, but without abjuring his Roman Catholic faith. So like, he's the only guy I've ever heard of who, almost like he was Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic. I don't think he's ever excommunicated. I don't, I don't get it to be honest with you, but basically he just one day decided I'm not gonna I'm not gonna practice Roman Catholicism anymore. I'm just gonna become an Eastern Orthodox monk and living in London and that's what he did. But I remember specifically they said that he was not forced to renounce the the beliefs of the Roman Catholic Church or anything like that. He just they said, Hey, you're in, dude and he got in. Anyway, I love his little book called The Jesus Prayer. At the time he wrote it, he wrote it anonymously and he just called himself a monk of the Eastern Church. And again, I think it's out of print. I looked for it on Amazon. Didn't really come in. I got it. It's out of, the, the version I got is at St. Vladimir's Press, which by the way is an awesome imprint. It has all sorts of great Eastern Orthodox works. But St. Vladimir's Press, if they're publishing it, you can trust it. So anyway, I would start with that book probably. He has another book called On the Invocation of the Name of Jesus, which I did not like. So be forewarned. You want to eat. And that one's still in print. You want to get the book that's not in print, in my opinion, The Jesus Prayer. Good luck with it. And as long as we're on The Jesus Prayer, I want to touch on something else. You know, it was on my blog last week. Uh, I mentioned... Econ Talk, the podcast Econ Talk with Russ Roberts, one of my favorites. It's a it's a big podcast too. I've never heard the figures, but I know he has a huge following. But Russ Roberts, he's a he's Jewish, and I think mostly a secular Jew. And I'm and I'm not at all positive I'm being fair to him in that regard. But he's getting increasingly religious as the years go on. I think he's in his early to mid sixties now, and he says he has more and more guests that look at the immaterial side of life. And again, it's still most about economics, don't get me wrong. I mean, he is a, he is an econ prof at George Mason University, which is a great econ school, but no matter. But last May, he had a guy on, uh, Joel Peterson. I guess he's a CEO of JetBlue or was or something like that. And they talk about a bunch of different topics. But at one point, Joel talks about how he's developed the practice of having a couple of mantras that he says to himself throughout the day. And you know, basically, these are mantras that address a particular weakness that he has, and he keeps saying something that counteracts it. And I, I can't for life remember what his mantras were. I'm not sure he told us what they were, 
But that's, you know, that's kind of, you know, rerouting the reels in your mind type thing. That's a Jesus prayer type thing. But I've long, long, long been fascinated when I start seeing these secular parallels to the religious life. And I either I'm getting more sensitive to it as I'm getting older, or the world is getting kind of in its own twisted, perverse way, more spiritual in a lot of ways, because I start seeing a lot, lot more parallels over and over and over again. So in this instance, you have a guy basically saying, I just repeat to myself over and over again, you know, whatever it is, you know, I am strong and beautiful or whatever, whatever the secular side is. And it's just like, you know, you're kind of doing a twisted version of what the monks in the Greek Orthodox started doing in a, you know, probably about the sixth or seventh century with the Jesus prayer. And now you're just kind of catching up 1400 years later. It's like the modern mind is just, you know, as I jump in this postmodern study, it's like the whole modern mind just, just got completely off the rails. And for 400 years, we just kind of whacked in the head. And now we're re- rediscovering all these traditional type beliefs and practices. And Russ Roberts is one of them that seems to be not explicitly or not purposefully rediscovering them, but he is. Through his own secular sources, he's discovering these type of spiritual truths. And again, I just find it absolutely fascinating. When Econ Talk comes through my feed, you know, my, my iTunes updates, updates the feed, I immediately look to see is he talking about something that's not just economics. And sometimes he is talking just economics, and I normally listen to that as well, because again, he does a great job. Uh, but then if he delves into something like the Cartesian mind-body split, or meditation or something like that. I, I'm just fascinated because when I listened to him, it's like, yeah, Russ, you're, you're hitting an awful lot of truths with your naked intellect. I'm, I'm pretty impressed here. Now you could have become Catholic or maybe Greek Orthodox and hit these truths 2000 years ago, but hey, better late than never, you know, type thing. So anyway, check it out. It's pretty good. Hey, quick addendum to that econ talk segment I just did. Russ Roberts could counter to me and say, well, no thanks, I won't go back 2,000 years, I'll just stay Jewish and go back 5,000 years, you know, so stick that in your pipe and smoke it. That would be a valid criticism, but what I'm getting to here is Christianity specifically, and in particular, looked into the psych, looked into psychological truths and spiritual truths and tried to work them out through various prayer practices and meditations. There is that type of mystical tradition in Judaism as well, but I and I'm certainly not qualified to speak on it. Um, I think if you go with a guy named um, Moses Maimonides, around the time of Thomas Aquinas, you'll see a lot of the stuff. So I meant no disrespect towards the Jewish religion. They definitely have a vein of this. I just don't think it was remotely as developed as it was under Christianity. I'm open for open to correction, though. Taoist philosopher Xuanza was fond of a story called Three in the Morning. The story goes as follows. There's a, a monkey keeper who proposed to give his monkeys uh, three measures of chestnuts in the morning, four measures of chestnuts at night. And the monkeys complained bitterly and said they wanted four chestnuts, measures of chestnuts in the morning, and three measures of chestnuts in the evening. And the monkey keepers said fine. And this has become known as the principle of three in the morning. And the question becomes, you know, why did the innkeeper give in to him? It was totally irrational. And the answer is because the innkeeper saw it didn't make a difference to him, whether it's four in the morning or three in the evening or three in the morning, four in the evening. Either way, he had to come up with seven measures of chestnuts, 
so it wasn't costing him anything, so he gave in to the irrational demands of the monkeys. And being monkeys, you couldn't expect much more out of them anyway. Dallas applies this to mankind. Men are irrational. Not everything they do is for a reason. So when you're confronted with irrationality, it's best just to give in. I actually had a chance to exercise this earlier this month. I have a I have a bunch of prayers on my on my iPhone. I have like seven notepads, you know, that little note app. I can't remember what it's called, but oh Evernote. I have that Evernote app with like seven sets of notes or meditations. Uh most are just they're just there's cut and pastings or things I typed in myself from like St. John of the Cross or Francis Fernandez or Benedict Rochelle and some of my other favorite writers. And during Mass, especially during hymns, since I, I don't sing very well or I'm just not into it, or during the final announcements, which I does, don't matter to me, I'll often look at these prayers and go through them. Well, <laughs> last Saturday, I'm at Mass by myself, and this older man this came up and was like right in my face about... I'm always on my phone during, I'm on my phone during mass and I'm not getting anything on mass and I'm disrespecting the priest. <laughs> this guy, this, I mean, he was older. I mean, he was, I mean, he's old enough to be my dad. Uh, but if this was like a different setting besides in the pews at a church, I would think the guy wanted to fight me. And, and I basically just said, um, with no thought really on my part, I just said, uh, my apologies. I meant no offense. And I, and I left and I tried to be nice about it. I later found out who the guy was, because I had no clue who he was at the time, but a good friend of mine over there said, oh yeah, that's him. He's a, he's not a bad guy. You know, I made give him a call and explain to him. He'll, he'll be cool about it. So I called the guy up. <laughs> not cool about it at all. He was, you know, three, you know, four measures of chestnuts in the morning. This guy with the phone laid into me when I told him my prayers in my app. Yeah, he said, I'm lying and, <laughs> <laughs> this conversation's over and I need to leave my phone in the car and click hung up on me. <laughs> so it's like, I'm not going to go back to that church anymore at all, uh, quite frankly. But the Taoist takeaway from this is, okay, the guy obviously has a deep, deep visceral reaction to use of the phone during Mass, even when confronted with a reasonable explanation and one that I know for a fact priests accept. I've heard them talk about it on EWTN. I've talked to two different priests about it. They're like, yeah, that's fine. You know, you have your prayer. And that's, that's, that's the modern world. You use, you use your iPhones for all sorts of things. And there are many prayer applications on the phone. Or, you know, you could type your own meditations into a phone. But he was having none of it. So the response to that isn't to go sit next to him next time, you know, with an iPad, you know, going, going through these things. You know, the answer is, just assume for whatever reason, irrational he might be, he does have his own quote-unquote reasons, and I don't know what they are, but I might as well just go ahead and give in to him. I don't have to use my phone during Mass. You know, there's other things I can do. I could take a notepad, although I'm sure some people might object to that as well. Uh, Father John Ricardo recommends that, by the way. Take a notepad and pen to Mass and jot down your thoughts. Evangelicals do it a lot, and it's, it's a good practice. I don't know what to tell you, though, if you get... You get Three messages of chestnuts in the morning, monkeys in the pew next to you. But anyway, the, the, the best answer of the Dallas is that don't get mad. Just do what he says. One thing that, you know, Juanza also points out is if you insist that people be reasonable, you yourself become unreasonable. Again, in my case, I'm not going to go back to that parish anymore because this guy is about ready to attack me. <laughs> so, um, I go to a different church now, but, you know, but, but the takeaway is hey, don't get mad. Don't be obstinate. It doesn't make a big difference to you whether you look at your look at your words in your app. No need to give scandal to others, and you always need to be aware of that. By the way, 
it's one of the biggest reasons why I think shacking up is so bad. If you're shacking up with someone before marriage, everyone assumes you're banging each other. And I appreciate you might be living as brother and sister, as they used to say. But everyone else doesn't know that, and you're giving scandal. So you really just, you can't. And so it's like that with a phone. I know I'm right. My priest knows I'm right. The kids in my family, they know what I'm doing. But not everyone around me gets it. So why do it if you know you're going to give people scandal? Until that moment, I didn't realize just how much scandal I was giving. But <laughs> now I do appreciate it. So anyway, just a little Taoist lesson for you. One, one straight from, straight from my own personal raw experience from just a couple weeks ago. That's it for this show. Thanks for listening. If you have not done so yet, please go to iTunes, to the Weekly Demon, and leave a review and give it a rating. I'm told that helps boost the Weekly Demon to the search engines. Also, we have a Facebook page. If you can go like it, that would be great. Go to the Twitter and follow us. If you're still listening to the old uh, TWE feed, that's fine. I'll keep that going for a little bit longer, but eventually that feed will go away, so I'd encourage you to go follow the new feed, The Weekly Demon with Eric Chesky. Also, check, check out our website, udemonpodcast.com. You can find show notes and other information that I think you'll enjoy. Thanks for listening.